This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gun violence and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. London was sweltering in the summer of 1849. Every day brought more news of an unstoppable cholera outbreak. It felt like death hung around every corner of the city. In her bedroom, 28-year-old Marie Manning brushed out her long, dark hair. Any moment now, her dinner guest and lover, Patrick O'Connor, would arrive, and Marie could barely tamp down her excitement. It would be a dinner party unlike any she'd ever thrown. Marie carefully brushed out one last knot and lay her hairbrush down on the vanity. Then she picked up the small air gun to its right. As she scrutinized her weapon, Marie went over the plan one last time. All she had to do was point the gun at O'Connor, pull the trigger, and all his money would be hers. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This week, we're discussing Marie Manning. In the summer of 1849, the 28-year-old Marie and her husband, Frederick, murdered her lover, Patrick O'Connor, in what would be dubbed by the British press as the Bermondsey Horror. 
Today, we'll explore how Marie's childhood led her to a life as a lady's maid in London. Then we'll detail how she became entangled with two different men and what led her to murder one of them. Next week, we'll follow Marie's daring escape across Europe. We'll also cover her sensational capture, trial, and lastly, her headline-grabbing execution. Marie de Roux was born in a small town near Lausanne, Switzerland, in 1821. She grew up in the shadow of the Swiss Alps as the youngest of five siblings. For the first 14 years of her life, Marie lived a quiet, rural existence. And then her father, a devout Catholic, decided that she would be joining a convent. Needless to say, his plan didn't sit well with young Marie. Instead of accepting her fate, Marie began searching for a way out. According to author and biographer Robert Hewish, her resistance to convent living was largely because she'd always acted more like a son than a daughter. Marie was bold, daring, and fearless. She wasn't content to do as her father commanded. Shortly before she was due to be sent to the convent in 1835, 14-year-old Marie knelt in the pews of the village chapel, going through the motions of prayer. But her heart wasn't in it. She dreamt of faraway places and handsome strangers who might sweep in to rescue her. And then, like magic, Marie looked up and met eyes with a mysterious stranger across the room. He was in his 20s and exceedingly handsome. It was as if her longing had conjured him up out of thin air— the man stared at Marie for the entire service. She couldn't help but blush. It was love at first sight. After the service, the man introduced himself to Marie's family. His name was Ludovico Sangallo, and he was a nobleman traveling from Florence. Impressed, Mr. Derue welcomed Sangallo into their home. Mrs. Derue even fantasized about him marrying one of her daughters. As for Marie, she fell more and more in love each day. She dreamt of a better life, one where she traveled the world with her handsome, noble husband. Except Sangalo was no nobleman. He was the leader of a group of bandits living in the Alps. The Darus had no idea because Sangalo was a smooth talker. He regaled Mrs. Daru with stories of his travels, he spent hours in the fields conversing with her husband. All the while, unbeknownst to both of them, he was planning on seducing their daughter. One night, Sangalo slipped Marie a piece of paper, asking her to secretly meet him at the chapel in a couple of hours. Marie knew it was wrong to meet a man alone, but she was young and in love. So she went. She just couldn't help herself. But Marie's brother, Frederick, caught wind of the plot and interrupted the meeting. He had long suspected that the supposed nobleman was lying about his identity. Catching Sangalo in the ignoble act of meeting with a young woman in private confirmed Frederick's suspicions. So he shot Sangalo on sight. It was a severe blow, but not quite fatal. Far from dissuading his sister from seeing Sangalo again, 
Frederick's actions only pushed the two closer together. Marie helped nurse Sangalo back to health, and then, the night before she was destined for the nunnery, she slipped out of her family home and ran away with him. Sangalo took Marie to an abandoned mansion in the Swiss Alps, where he introduced her to his fellow bandits. Over time, as Mary witnessed Sangalo and his men commit several robberies, she became desensitized to criminal activity. Before we continue with Marie's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Marie ran away with Sangalo at 14, still a formative age. According to a report from the National Research Council and Institute of Medicine, exposure to criminal activity as an adolescent isn't a guarantee of committing crimes later in life. It is, however, a recurring factor in most adult criminals. This is because the simple act of being around crime makes it feel more acceptable. So was the case with Marie. Her adolescent experiences in the Alps normalized crime in her eyes. Five years later, however, the allure of Sangalo and his mountain bandits seemed to fade. And soon, 20-year-old Marie felt it was time to move on. So in 1840, she left behind the Swiss Alps and made her way to France. Upon arriving, Marie got a job working as a maid at an inn in Strasbourg. One day, Mr. and Mrs. Wentworth, a couple on vacation from Ireland, arrived at the inn. Almost immediately, Mr. Wentworth was transfixed by Marie. He was overwhelmed by her beauty. He decided he had to have her. To that end, he convinced his wife to hire Marie as a lady's maid, arguing that a sophisticated French girl would be far superior to a regular Irish maid. Mrs. Wentworth loved the idea of having a chic woman as household staff, so she agreed. A few weeks later, when Marie arrived in Ireland, Mr. Wentworth immediately set about attempting to seduce her. To his dismay, Marie didn't return his affections. Instead, she seemed completely focused on her lady-in-waiting tasks. If Marie thought this would put Mr. Wentworth's attentions off, she was mistaken. On the contrary, her indifference only seemed to inflame his ardor. One evening, Marie was walking down the hallway when Mr. Wentworth popped out of his library and beckoned her inside. As a lady's maid, Marie didn't have much agency. If she was commanded to do something as innocuous as entering a room, she had no choice but to obey. Marie followed Mr. Wentworth into the library. Once inside, he shut the door behind her, sat down on the sofa, and pulled her into his lap. Unbeknownst to him, at around the same time, Mrs. Wentworth decided that she fancied a good book to read. Upon entering the library, she was stunned to find Marie sitting on her husband's lap. In a rage, Mrs. Wentworth scratched Marie's face and screamed at her to leave the house immediately. Seeing no other recourse, Marie fled. However, the saga didn't end there. Behind Mrs. Wentworth's back, Mr. Wentworth contacted Marie and begged her to be his mistress. In return, he would pay her 400 pounds. Marie felt trapped. 
She didn't want to be his mistress. She didn't want to be anybody's mistress. But her reputation already stood to be ruined. Besides, she really needed money, and his proposition was the only job offer she'd received. Then, right before Marie went to accept Mr. Wentworth's salacious offer, she had a stroke of good fortune. While perusing the newspaper, she happened to see an article that announced her father's death. Far from being mournful at the news, Marie was hopeful, because the article also included the news that her parents had left her a small inheritance. At that, the wheels in Marie's head began to spin. She needed money to survive. Her parents' inheritance, coupled with the 400 pounds Mr. Wentworth had offered, would be just enough to get her through. Once she realized that, Marie made her decision. She contacted Mr. Wentworth and accepted his proposal. To Mr. Wentworth's woe, the minute Marie had his 400 pounds in hand, she disappeared. Unbeknownst to him, she had left Ireland for London in order to collect on her inheritance. Marie's robbery of Mr. Wentworth represented the first time she'd ever stolen money. However, she was likely able to justify the act. After all, it was no more than he deserved for ever thinking he could own her. Marie would utilize these same flexible morals in London. Mr. Wentworth might have been her first victim, but he wouldn't be her last. Coming up, Marie lives in London and is seduced by a new level of wealth. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Marie DeRue was good at getting herself out of tough situations. She'd done so when faced with life at a convent, and she'd done it again when forced into a corner by Mr. Wentworth. But now, after stealing from Mr. Wentworth and fleeing Ireland, 22-year-old Marie had to start all over from scratch. So in 1843, she secured a job as a lady's maid for Lady Anna Polk in the heart of London. There, Marie grew accustomed to a new kind of life. Due to the Polk wealth, Marie was able to adorn herself in fine clothes. In addition, her job as Anna's lady-in-waiting allowed her access to events where she could rub shoulders with the elite. For three years, Marie's life continued much in the same way, and with each passing day, she grew more comfortable in her new, luxurious setting. And then in January 1846, 25-year-old Marie's fineries were cut off when Lady Polk died. Though initially despondent, Marie's grief at her diminished circumstances turned to joy when she found her next job. This time, she wouldn't be working for a mere noble. She'd be working for Lady Blantyre, the daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland. Lady Polk was rich, 
But Lady Blantyre was seriously wealthy. Marie would often accompany her new mistress on visits to the Duchess at Stafford House. The place was so grand that Queen Victoria once visited and remarked to the Duchess, I have come from my house to your palace. It was in this world of decadent luxury that Marie began to cultivate the type of life she desired, one of excess and riches, only accessible by money. It wasn't long before Marie began to wonder how she could secure similar circumstances for herself. For a woman of Marie's age and status, the easiest way to come into money of her own was through marriage. As a result, Marie decided that any suitor who came her way would have to prove his worth, literally. In 1846, on a channel crossing to Boulogne, 25-year-old Marie met her first candidate, an Irishman named Patrick O'Connor. More than 20 years her senior, O'Connor seemed respectable enough. He worked as a custom house officer at the docks, and he had a good deal of personal wealth in railway stocks. However, O'Connor hadn't come by his money legally. Prevailing rumors claimed that he had bribed his way into his current job and had suspect practices when it came to his under-the-counter money lending. When Marie met him, however, she knew none of this. As far as she was concerned, he was a charming Irishman with enough money to pique her interest. For his part, O'Connor was entranced by Marie. He adored her French accent and sang her praises. After their first meeting, the two struck up a correspondence. But Marie was not a patient woman. She quickly grew tired of O'Connor's letters and wrote him, "'What good is it to continue our correspondence? You never speak of marriage.'" Marie knew what she wanted, and if O'Connor wasn't going to provide her with it, then she would find it somewhere else. Marie often traveled along the Great Western Railway with Lady Blantyre. On one of these trips, she met her next candidate for marriage, Frederick Manning. Though Manning worked as a railway guard, he was a man of some independent wealth and good social standing. Marie knew she could do much worse than him, and yet it wasn't love at first sight for her. Manning, however, was attracted to Marie from the start. Like O'Connor, he was taken by her seeming exoticness. He soon began calling on her on his days off from the railway. Little did he know, he wasn't the only man courting the French lady-in-waiting. Despite the angry letter she'd sent him, Marie still allowed O'Connor to pay her frequent visits at Stafford House. As the two men vied for her affections, Marie weighed her options. She wasn't sure which of her suitors would provide her with the most financially advantageous match. She liked O'Connor, but she had her doubts about him. Despite his constant adoration, he didn't seem intent on settling down. Even worse, Marie had noticed that O'Connor had a troubling penchant for alcohol. Manning, on the other hand, was sober and willing to commit. And yet, Marie didn't feel the same pull to him as she did with O'Connor. When Manning eventually proposed marriage, Marie was torn. Then, Manning implied that he would soon be receiving a hefty inheritance. That decided it. Marie accepted his proposal, ostensibly leaving O'Connor behind. 
In 1847, 26-year-old Marie married Frederick Manning at St. James's Church in Piccadilly, London. After the wedding, Marie received a letter from Patrick O'Connor. He claimed that he had been about to propose to her himself. He wrote passionately, saying, Why not write and say what you intended before you acted so? I would have gone every step that man could and got married to the only being on the face of the earth who could make me happy. Most recently married women would have tossed the letter and its empty promises aside, but not Marie. Instead, Marie decided to introduce O'Connor, her former lover, to Manning, her current husband. Thus began a tenuous friendship that would prove to be the beginning of the end. Now a married woman, Marie left Lady Blantyre and moved to Taunton, England with Manning. There, the couple became keepers of the White Hart Inn. They lived and worked together at the inn for the next year. But it wasn't exactly a honeymoon. The first event to throw a wrench in the newly married couple's life occurred at the tail end of 1847. To Marie's surprise, her husband was fired from the Great Western Railway after being implicated in a series of robberies. There was never enough evidence to charge him, but Marie heard all the rumors. The ones that claimed her husband was the guard on duty when 4,000 pounds of gold bullion went missing. The gossip claimed that Manning didn't sound the alarm because he'd been paid off by the robbers. Marie wondered why her well-to-do husband would need to participate in a robbery in the first place. Upon asking him, she learned that Manning had lied to her about his inheritance. In reality, he was nowhere near as wealthy as he'd led her to believe. The main reason she'd picked Manning in the first place was because of his purported wealth. Now she was left with the sobering realization that she might have made the wrong choice. Throughout the next year, Marie and Manning's marriage steadily deteriorated. Violent fights often broke out between the two. To deal with the strain, Manning began drinking heavily. Making matters worse, he also began having numerous affairs with women in Taunton. Fed up and furious, Marie deserted him. She fled back to London and into the arms of Patrick O'Connor. If her husband was going to have his affairs, she would have hers. However, 27-year-old Marie eventually returned to Taunton. Perhaps she wanted to give her husband another chance, or maybe her London neighbors had grown suspicious of her relationship with O'Connor, putting her reputation at risk. The most likely explanation, however, is that Marie had simply run out of money. After returning to Manning, Marie tried to make the best of the situation. Her husband was still the proprietor of the White Hart Inn, and while it wasn't a high-paying job, at least it was something to keep them afloat. But try as she might to forgive and forget, Marie was still furious about her husband's lies. Between the affairs and his made-up inheritance, he had betrayed her in every sense that a partner could. So, to even the score, Marie decided to steal from him. 
One evening while Manning was asleep, she stole 400 pounds worth of money and valuables, got on a train and fled into the night. According to psychologists Julie Fitness and Garth Fletcher, humiliation and feelings of powerlessness after a betrayal can lead to hatred and revenge. Marie certainly felt embarrassed and trapped by Manning's lies. Thus, she felt motivated to do something, anything, to even the score. And according to psychologists Sally Planalp and Susan Hafen, simply causing one's betrayer to suffer makes one feel better. Whatever satisfaction Marie got from robbing her husband soon ran out, and so did the money she stole. As a result, Marie eventually returned to Taunton. By the time she went back, however, Manning's drinking had gotten worse. And more importantly, he had lost the White Heart Inn. All of this meant that Manning was not at all pleased to see Marie, but the two were stuck with each other, for better or worse. With nothing holding them to Taunton, and perhaps looking for a fresh start, the Mannings moved back to London in early 1849. A few months later, 28-year-old Marie and her husband found jobs as live-in proprietors at a London pub called the King John's Head. To hold the property, Manning deposited what little shares and securities he had. It should have been a simple task, deposit the money and forget about it until the time came to cash out. However, Marie had different plans. Unbeknownst to her husband, she attempted to reclaim the deposit in violation of the rules of their lease. However, Marie's attempt was thwarted. She left the pub's office, making a scene as she went, but with no funds in her purse. Manning, meanwhile, either didn't care that his wife was trying to rob him, or he was too blinded by his drinking problem to notice. And Marie saw this as yet another betrayal. After all, one of the biggest reasons she'd chosen to marry Manning over O'Connor was because O'Connor had been the heavy drinker. Now, Marie found herself with a husband who was both poor and a drunk. When the Mannings' role as proprietors of the King John's Head came to an end, they were forced to move once more. They found their new residence at Number 3 Minver Place in the Bermondsey neighborhood. The rent was far too much for the Mannings to manage on their own, since Manning had no real job and neither did Marie. The only way they could afford to live there was to take on a tenant. Luckily for them, Marie had resumed her affair with O'Connor, and for reasons we can only imagine, he agreed to sublease a room in their house. The three of them would live together in an odd sort of harmony. For Marie, this was perhaps the best she could hope for. She was trapped in a loveless marriage, but she could at least have her lover under the same roof. As for Manning, he really didn't have a choice. They were desperate for the money. He figured this way he could keep a close eye on his wife and her so-called friend. At least, that was the plan. On March 25, 1849, Marie and Manning signed their year-long lease. And then, once the ink had dried, O'Connor changed his mind. He decided that he wouldn't live with them after all. The couple was furious. 
How dare he leave them hanging out to dry like this? For the first time, Marie and Manning agreed on something. They would get revenge for this betrayal. And if there was anything Marie's life had proven, it was that for her, there was no graver crime than robbing her of what she was owed. Coming up, Marie's desire for revenge culminates in a plot to murder O'Connor. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1849, 28-year-old Marie Manning and her husband, 30-year-old Frederick Manning, had just signed a lease that they couldn't afford. Patrick O'Connor had agreed to lodge with them, but at the last minute, he changed his mind. O'Connor's betrayal made both Marie and Manning furious. Manning was so mad that he actually filed a suit against O'Connor for 30 shillings. Since the amount constituted three weeks' worth of rent, O'Connor considered the suit reasonable, so he gamely settled out of court. After paying Marie and her husband, O'Connor assumed all had been forgiven. The behavior of the Mannings seemed to confirm this. They began frequently inviting him over for dinner. Marie and O'Connor resumed their affair. Everything was exactly as it had been before. But unbeknownst to him, underneath the niceties, the Mannings were planning their revenge. It didn't matter to them that O'Connor had forked over 30 shillings. They felt they'd been tricked out of a lot more than that and they wanted what they deserved. Without O'Connor, the couple needed to find a new tenant to keep themselves afloat. Fortunately, a young medical student named William Massey soon came along and rented the room. Upon moving in, Massey saw nothing out of the ordinary with the Mannings, other than the fact that the couple was quite friendly with O'Connor. Marie still went to his home frequently. But these weren't just social calls. Marie's visits had a second purpose. They allowed her to scout out exactly where O'Connor kept his money. One evening, O'Connor's landlady, Anne Arms, walked in as Marie and O'Connor were having an in-depth discussion about his finances. Arms noted that O'Connor's cash box was out, along with his railway stocks. Since he was a private man who normally kept his property hidden, Arms thought O'Connor must have trusted Marie a great deal to be so open with her. When she got home, Marie shared what she'd learned with her husband. O'Connor was worth 20,000 pounds. That night, the revenge plot was crystallized. The Mannings decided to steal O'Connor's money. At this point, stealing was a regular occurrence for Marie. According to psychologist Dr. Tian Dayton, certain out-of-control behaviors, like an obsessive need for money, can create similar chemical reactions in the brain as substance addiction. In the same way, satisfying that behavioral addiction creates a high not unlike a drug. In other words, Marie wasn't just obsessed with money, she was addicted. And addiction can lead people to extremes. Marie and Manning may have started out with plans to steal from O'Connor, but their discussions soon took a darker turn. One evening, Manning went to their tenant, William Massey's room, and asked, 
what drug would be most likely to produce stupefaction or partial intoxication so as to cause a person to put his hand to paper? From the rambling conversation that followed, Massey came to believe that Manning intended to drug O'Connor, perhaps to get him to sign over his money immediately. Manning's questions only escalated from there. On another night, he asked Massey, which part of the skull is most dangerous to injure? On yet a different night, he wondered aloud whether murderers went to heaven. In the last of his ominous questions, Manning asked Massey whether air guns made any noise. Then he asked about chloroform and laudanum. Despite the concerning nature of these questions, Massey clearly felt Manning was harmless. He did nothing to inform either O'Connor or the police. Manning wasn't going about this alone either. Marie had come to the same realization that simply stealing a few railway shares wasn't enough. If she wanted all of O'Connor's money, she had to do the unthinkable. According to Manning, Marie was the mastermind behind the plot. Where Manning was weak, she was strong. Where he was indecisive, Marie was resolute. However, Manning was not a passive bystander. He played an equal part in the gruesome events that transpired. On July 25, 1849, Manning took the first step by attempting to buy a crowbar. However, the store he went to didn't keep small crowbars in stock. On Manning's insistence, they promised to deliver one to his house in a few days. The next day, while he was waiting, Manny ordered a bushel of quicklime. This didn't raise any alarms, since quicklime was commonly used to kill garden slugs. But Manning knew of another purpose. It was also very good at decomposing bodies. By July 28th, Manning was still impatiently waiting for the crowbar to arrive. Paranoid, when the delivery boy came by on his route, Manning went out into the streets and intercepted the crowbar himself. Marie was much calmer than her husband. If she felt any of his anxiety, she didn't show it. When the quicklime they'd ordered arrived, she greeted the delivery men with a smile, as if nothing was amiss. Once all the items had been delivered, the Mannings knew they had to get rid of their lodger. They told Massey he had to move out immediately. Massey was shocked by the sudden eviction, but the Mannings insisted. They claimed they'd be traveling and he couldn't stay while they were gone. Seeing no other option, Massey packed up his things and left. Having gotten rid of the only potential witness, Marie sat down on August 8th and wrote a letter to Patrick O'Connor, inviting him over for dinner that evening. By afternoon, Marie and Frederick Manning were ready. They had both a gun and a crowbar in case either option wasn't enough. The bushel of quicklime waited in the back kitchen, and O'Connor, he was set to arrive at five o'clock sharp. But five o'clock came and went, and the Mannings were still waiting. Finally, hours later, at 9.45 p.m., there was a knock at the door. 
Marie hurried over, ready to carry out her plan, but when she yanked the door open, she froze. O'Connor was on her doorstep all right, but he wasn't alone. He had brought a friend, Mr. Walsh. Trying hard to conceal her anger, Marie welcomed the men inside. She would regroup with her husband later. For now, they had to focus on not raising any suspicions. All smiles and laughter, Marie led the men into the living room. She poured a drink for Mr. Walsh as O'Connor and Manning smoked together. When O'Connor complained of a headache, Marie massaged his temples with perfume to soothe his pain. Then, after nearly an hour and a half of this tense charade, the Mannings sent both men on their way. As O'Connor walked out of their house, they insisted that he come again for dinner the following night. This time, however, they asked that he come alone. So, on August 9, 1849, O'Connor returned to the house on Minver Place. He would never be seen alive again. Thanks for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the details of Marie's crime, her daring escape, and her eventual capture, trial, and very public execution. For more information on Marie Manning, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin by Albert Borowitz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.